Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, hello. I hope you are all doing very well. Welcome to the show. Now, I suppose it's almost this kind of dystopian nightmare, which is often spoken about in the late 1970s, to show, to portray Britain as a essentially a failed state, the sick man of Europe, collapsing under the crushing weight of the post-war social democratic consensus, that this was a time when the rubbish piled up on the streets and Britain was in a period of crisis. And I think it's interesting to reflect on what we're going through now, because if we had a Labour government now and you had the scenes of queues outside petrol stations as petrol runs out, of supermarket shelves going empty, I think we'd have a picture painted by much of the right-wing media and the Conservative Party of a country in a profound national crisis. That isn't obviously how it's being portrayed largely. Now, we've seen today Kwesi Kwartang, who I tried to speak to. I don't know if people saw my conservative, uh, my, the documentary did the Conservative Party conference, which I'll refer to shortly. Uh, he didn't want to speak to us, but he did speak to the BBC today. And he spoke of struggling energy and manufacturing companies not getting much more support, but that he was lazing with the chance and didn't expect billions more in subsidies. But how bad are things going to get this winter? It's quite an interesting report in the New York Times, and it's often interesting reading foreign news reports about our own country. Um, I remember reading a New York Times report two weeks or so before our lockdown was belatedly imposed, uh, in which uh, it's, it, it portrayed a nation which was in very much denial and delusion about the nature of COVID-19. And it was interesting because this New York Times report suggests that Britain is heading for a bleak winter. But how bleak actually is it? Uh, what is the current economic crisis, uh, the nature of the crisis, uh, and how 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 much worse will it get? What should Labour be calling for? Uh, we do have an official opposition in this country. I don't know if you may have forgotten. Um, they they often have as well, to be fair to them. But what should they be calling for? What are the kind of key demands people on the left should be talking about? Um, but also talk about other things as well, because as I've said, I've just been to Conservative Party conference, lucky me. And the narrative of the Tories at the moment is to shift to this high wage economy that Britain has been held back uh, because of our membership of the European Union. And now we will have this high wage economy, immigration being scapegoated, of course, for people's suppressed wages. We have gone through the longest squeeze in living standards of workers in this country since the Napoleonic era. Uh, which had nothing to do with uh, immigration. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what Boris Johnson's been talking about. Are wages actually going up at the moment? Is the is Are they going to fix that economic model? Uh, and obviously, we'll talk about how much Brexit and COVID-19 have played in all of this. Now, before I bring in our fantastic guests, who are always very lucky to have brilliant guests um, on the show, just the usual housekeeping, do you support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84? That enables us to pay our team union wages. They did the incredible... Uh, documentary uh, Conservative Party Conference, which is going viral on YouTube and Facebook and on the podcast as well. What we did is we went behind the scenes and we challenged ministers and MPs and activists about cuts to universal credit, about the Tory handling of the pandemic. Uh, do check it out if you haven't watched it. It's, uh, it's still doing very, very well. Uh, and do also listen to us on the podcast. Now, that's enough from me. I'm going to bring in our two first two brilliant guests, uh, Karis Roberts, the director of the IPPR uh, think tank, and Laurie McFarlane, who's the economics editor of Open Democracy. Uh, great to see you both. How are you doing? Well, thank you. How are you? Alive. Survived, survived Conservative Party conference, as did you. You were also there. Lucky us. Uh, I don't know what I did in a past life. Something pretty bad. Should we just start? Like, how bad is the current 
crisis. Let's start with you, Laurie. What, what, how would you kind of term the, the, you know, how would you describe the nature of the current crisis and how severe it is? Well, we're seeing a whole range of different things come together at one time. Uh, and so I certainly think that it's very much to be taken seriously. On the one hand, we have energy prices going up at a level that we haven't seen for a very long time. Energy bills already obviously quite high in this country make up a large proportion of, of household spending. On the other end, we also have uh, you know, a range of shortages. We see uh, whether that's empty supermarket shelves, whether we see people struggling to get hold of fuel. Uh, and of course, this is only autumn time. And so we're going into the winter period, which is generally a period which is generally quite difficult anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, many of these things aren't probably going to get better anytime soon, certainly without radical response from uh, the government. So on the current trajectory that we're on, I think we are looking, unfortunately, at, at a fairly bleak winter period. What do you think, Harris? How would you sum up the current crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think that's broadly right. I think I'd add to that with a little bit more pessimism um, that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. Um, And you might see further restrictions. We know that government's plan B uh, does include asking people to work from home again. So there might be further things coming down the track. And it's quite difficult at this stage to predict and know what's going to happen in the economy. There are a lot of global factors at play. Um, but yeah, that's that's not an additive that is cheery. It's more that there, there's quite a lot of uncertainty coming as well. Laurie, let's talk about the energy crisis. What, what's what's causing it, and how much worse do you think it will get as we move into the winter? Well, it's certainly true, as Karis mentioned. There are some global factors that are feeding into this, um, but that's made been made much worse by a whole series of self-inflicted domestic policy failures recently, and indeed going back decades. So if we start firstly at the global level, it's been described as a sort of perfect storm of factors which are leading to gas prices soaring. So firstly, we saw across Europe a very long, cold winter, which lasted longer than normal, which saw gas stocks basically depleted to a lower level than you would normally expect at this time in the year. We've also seen maintenance on lots of uh, gas field sites, both in our own North Sea production, but also elsewhere that was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic now happening. And that means that obviously capacity isn't where you might expect it to be at this time of year. We're also seeing strong, very strong demand for liquefied natural gas in Asia and Latin America as the recovery from the pandemic is starting to kick into gear. Economies opening up, uh, you know, we're seeing demand starting to soar and supply really sort of struggling to keep up with that due to lingering effects of the pandemic. There's also some other things. So we've seen very, very unusually low winds uh, in recent months, very, very low, which means that the amount of energy generated from the UK's not insignificant wind power has been lower than we might expect. And so we've been having to rely on gas to make up for that more so than we would otherwise have had to do. Compounded on top of that, though, we have this whole range of domestic things. And, And it's easy to look at this as something new or short term or just to blame Brexit, for example. But really, When it comes to energy, at least, this really is something that's been decades in the making. And if we rewind all the way back to the 1980s, we had the privatization of the uh, gas and electricity sector. And after that, we saw major energy energy companies basically embark on what was called at the time a dash for gas. So basically betting big that the future of Britain's energy was in natural gas, or at least a large proportion of that in terms of heating our homes, uh, generating our electricity and all the rest of it. And over time, we became much more dependent on gas to power the country. And for a while, we were able to to produce most of our gas domestically in the North Sea. But over the course of the past 10, 15 years, we've not been able to produce enough. And so we've been basically importing around half of the natural gas that we're using. And given that we're so reliant on, on imports, you might have thought that we'd then be investing in storage like other European countries do, so that when global shocks do hit, we can then rely on storage to sort of smooth out like these price shocks. But unfortunately, in Britain, we shut down our only major gas storage site in 2017, basically because we thought the world was swimming in liquefied natural gas and we wouldn't need it. And so really, the main reason why we're hit much harder than other countries than when it comes to the energy crisis is because we're much more reliant on natural gas than virtually any other country in Europe, bar a couple. Uh, And we don't have any storage capacity, which means we're very, very vulnerable to uh, sudden price swings and shocks. And then on top of all of that, of course, we have our very fragmented, broken private energy system, which is quite expensive anyway by international standards. And we have quite a lot of, you know, our our transmission and distribution network, for example, which makes up about a quarter of all bills. 
the companies there are private monopolies making huge, huge profits, meaning that we're, we're basically paying over the odds for that anyway, which means that we now have in England alone about 3 million people households anyway in fuel poverty before we're going to see the prices go up over the coming months. And so this is really something that's been, you know, as I say, decades in the making that we're really paying the price now for decades of bad energy policy uh, and the, the chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, Karen's on this, on both the energy crisis and, for example, the supply chain crisis, the government are very quick to say this is out of their hands. This is uh, to do with external factors when it comes to energy. It's to do with... Uh, the pandemic, of course, when it comes to the supply chain crisis. What do, what do you think about that whole narrative versus the reality, which obviously Lois just touched on? Yeah, I mean, I think the left needs to be a little bit careful sometimes. I think we have a tendency to say everything's a crisis and it's all the government's making. And as we've just heard from Laurie, that isn't exactly the case. There are a lot of factors that are feeding into this. Instead, I think the kind of critique of the Tories is that they haven't put in place the preparation that has, was needed for big shocks like Brexit um, and for the reopening of the economy. Um, so I would say that the kind of where they've gone wrong is by running our economy uh, right to its very edge. So whether it's in public services and the NHS, where we have nowhere near enough beds to kind of absorb a shock, whether it's in the storage of gas, the theme across the economy is that we're no longer resilient. We've prioritised mm. efficiency over resilience. Um, and so I do think it's not, no, this wasn't a crisis entirely of the government's making, but you know, the point of government is to prepare for these sorts of things and to manage them when they arise. And that's where things have really gone wrong. So in terms of... How bad do you think things are going to get in the winter? What do you think, Laurie? Where do you think these things... I mean, because it was interesting, as I say, the New York Times had this quite dystopian uh, kind of portrayal of where things are heading, um, which, again, got ridiculed a lot by people on the right who think it's doing Britain down and so on. But what, what, do you, what do you think in terms of how bad things will get in the coming weeks and months? Well, on the one hand, I mean, there, in some of these things, there isn't a quick, easy fix, given that we are where we are because of all the failures over time. And there is no quick mm -hmm. fix. For example, we can't just conjure up energy cheap, you know, domestically produced energy overnight. That that takes, you know, a very long time. Similarly, on the supply chain crisis, you know, the government's now tried to issue visas for HGV drivers, very short term ones, assuming that they'll all just come back as soon as they issue them. And of course, we've seen very low take up of that. And uh, now we have the army coming in to help deliver things. And so on the one hand, that you know, it, it isn't looking great. On the other hand, obviously, some of this is policy dependent. And the government is, in many ways, taking steps that are making things even worse for in terms of the impact on households and families. So, for example, universal credit. The government has just cut universal credit for nearly six million of the lowest income families in the country by over a thousand pounds a year just at the moment where we're entering this crunch period, which seems completely self-defeating. Similarly, on public sector pay, it's, it's introduced a public sector pay freeze again at this time when you know people are going to be feeling the pinch much more. And so I do think there are, because of all the issues that we're facing, it is going to be difficult and there are going to be, you know, it's going to be a difficult winter, but there are steps that the government could and should be taking to make, uh, to make that better and to avoid uh, the hardship that, that people will inevitably face on our current trajectory. And unfortunately, we're just not seeing that from the government at the moment. What do you think, Karis, in terms of the coming weeks and months? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with Laurie. And as I said before, I think it's, it is important not to kind of frame everything as a crisis. Um, but the thing that really worries me is this universal credit cut coming at the same time um, as all of these things. And that's not just going to, you know, the whole isn't just going to affect the poorest people in society. Obviously, we care deeply about, about those people, but it's also going to be affecting average, ordinary families. Mm -hmm. um, so the combination of the kind of rising costs with the cut to universal credit, we know the universal credit goes to lots of people who are in work as well as out of work, um, that is expected to uh, decrease the average family's income by about 2% in real terms, in terms of their spending money and about 7% at the bottom. Um, so that's a really, you know, that kind of money isn't something you can just take away from families and they'll find a way to get around it. That's really going to be felt. And I think the political impacts of that could be, um, could be quite strong as well as, you know, how people feel about it in their everyday lives. It was really striking if, in the, the, the documentary of the Conservative Party conference how Tory delegates stuck 
almost to a, religiously to a script of people being in poverty because of their failure to budget properly, spending on the wrong things as they justify the cut to universal credit. Um, and I say that's striking because that is core to the idea, you know, Thatcher ideology. These are so these aren't social problems requiring collective solutions. They're individual failings that the welfare state encourages and nurtures, which is why it needs to be rolled back. Uh, but it's interesting just because of the narrative the Tories have spun, of course, about being this working class blue collar conservatism that 40% of course of people on universal credit are in are in work um yeah laurie i mean in terms of uh for example prices going up should should the bank should you know interest rates go up should what should the government do with a stimulus for example well i mean we're in an interesting period just now because inflation at least in terms of consumer price inflation hasn't been something that we have really had to think too much about recently mm-hmm. at least on the left, those of us who are sort of under 40, for example, uh, consumer price inflation hasn't really been uh, a thing that sort of dominated politics. What has dominated politics, I think, has been asset price inflation, which has been, you know, why we have houses that are incredibly unaffordable, which is why we've seen huge divides in wealth inequality with those who own assets, houses, financial assets, etc., getting much wealthier while everyone else is locked out from that. I do think now, though, where we are looking ahead, both in terms of the energy stuff and various other things, I do think that consumer price inflation is something that we probably do want to start to be talking about and thinking about, not necessarily that a little bit of inflation is a, is a bad thing. But I do think that, you know, we're hearing various people and some people in the Bank of England talking about, you know, tightening monetary policy and all this kind of stuff. I think it's really important that we, we sort of take a step back and think, well, what is inflation actually? Because it's often talked about as some mysterious force that sort of pushes up the prices of everything at a sort of similar rate. And of course it isn't. It's a sort of index measure that looks at the price of lots and lots of different goods and services and then tries to aggregate that up. And if you look at the moment, well, where the inflationary pressure is coming from in the economy, things like energy prices going up, what is raising interest rates going to do to address that? Probably nothing. And actually raising interest rates will probably have a detrimental effect on other areas of the economy by sort of introducing a contractory, contractory policy at a time when we don't need it. And so instead of you know this idea that there's these group of great men in the Bank of England, most of them are men who can sort of look at inflation, stroke their chins and push one button, mm-hmm. i.e. interest rates, and that will sort of solve everything, I think is completely outdated. Instead, we need to be looking, well, where are the price pressures coming from the economy? Uh, what can we do about that? Maybe, you know, is that's not just monetary policy. It might be fiscal policy changes that's needed. It might be uh, regulatory policy changes. It might be the government actually acting proactively through industrial policy to try and address supply bottlenecks in certain parts of the economy. There are a whole range of other things that I think need to be looked at. And I think this is the kind of where we need to move to, I think, in terms of thinking about inflation is get a bit smarter and a bit more proactive about this rather than just this idea that, you know, the bank, well, let's just let this, let's just leave this to the smart men at the Bank of England who can push the interest rate button, which, as I said, I don't think will actually do any good and probably will do quite a lot of harm. What do you think, Harris? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really important because whenever inflation goes up, you start getting people saying, you know, we need to increase interest rates. We need to make sure that wages don't go up too high, etc. But as Laurie says, the nature of the economic problems that we have at the moment are, you know, they're global supply shocks. That's not going to be sorted by an interest rate rise. And so the bank is actually pretty weakened in this situation. What is really important, though, is that as those costs are coming in, people are helped to get through those problems. Um, And that's where the government comes in. So the government could, for instance, be supporting people with those extra costs. Um, The government could be investing now to uh, retrofit our homes, make sure that they're actually insulated for the future and um, have renewable energy uh, heating them. And they could be investing in the economy so that we can see growth. And on just on the wage point, because I know we're probably going to come on to wages, but in that same vein of people saying, oh, well, you know, wages are going up, that, that isn't that dangerous with inflation. No, the problem with inflation is that it erodes people's spending power. And so now is not the time to be kind of pulling back um, economic support. It's not the time to be uh, kind of trying to invest less. Now is the time to be investing more. Um, and at IPPR, we actually think that the government needs to be put, putting in a further 47 billion this year into green investment, into um, skills, into universal credit uh, to get through this winter. Before we just come on to wages, 
Um, in terms of what Labour should be calling for on these different crises, and I suppose, I mean, what Labour are arguing for at the moment is, is not entirely clear. They spent, of course, Labour Party conference, uh, the leadership deciding to have an internal ruckus rather than uh, present a vision for the country. But, uh, you know, on the one hand, they're very averse to talking about Brexit because just from a, polit- a strategic point of view, they know they lost disproportionately leave voters in marginal seats who they want to win back. And they are aware Keir Starmer is associated with a second referendum policy. So they're fearful of anything that might remind people of those credentials and make it look like they're trying to reverse Brexit. So that's why they're not largely talking about uh, Brexit. Uh, But when it comes, of course, to, I mean, the the economic platform at the moment, I mean, Rachel Rees had this very welcome announcement of £28 billion a year for for greening the economy. But they are talking about balancing budgets, talking about the problem of the the national deficit and so on. I mean, what do you think, Laurie, in terms of where Labour are positioning themselves and what they should be saying about these different crises? Well, I mean, at the moment, these times of of, of genuine, uh, you know, hardship and, and 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 you know, don't use the word crisis lightly, but people are using that word. This is a time where you do need strong opposition, and actually, you do need bold measures in the economy in order to try and address some of this stuff. And unfortunately, Labour have been, you know, kind of silent or or or, or tame at least um, far more than than I think is needed. And I think. When it comes to things like energy, I mean, this is really a great time. You know, Keir Starmer said the other day, this isn't the time to be talking about the energy sector. Whereas I would argue it absolutely is the right time to be talking about the energy sector because it, it is facing a crisis. And, and indeed, the cracks of our energy system are starting to show. And so I think Labour should be talking about energy just now, not, not just to deal with this immediate crisis, but obviously we have to make a, an urgent, rapid energy transition over the course of the next 10, 15 years to meet our climate targets. And that can't happen at the pace and, and speed that's required through the market mechanism or, or the profit incentive. The, the reality is we need to see quite significant state action, state-led action in energy if we're going to get anywhere near close to dealing with the climate crisis. And so I think this is absolutely the time we'd like to see Labour come out with much bolder uh, vision on, on the energy crisis. And I don't think often People, when we talk about energy, people talk about, think about the big six, because that's obviously who we interact with and the, the various other energy suppliers. Uh, and o- often, I think, actually, some of the bigger issues there are sort of sit behind that in transmission, distribution uh, mm. and generation, all of which then have a knock-on effect in terms of the prices that, that we pay. And so I think we'd like to see Labour come out with quite a bold vision for energy, saying this is what we need to do now. There are going to be, it is going to be a tough winter because, you know, we've had the, we've had the energy sector mismanaged for decades, but we've got a plan going forward, which is how we're going to go from where we are now to, uh, you know, a clean, uh, sustainable, um, resilient energy system over the next five, 10 years. And then when it comes to things like wages and and living standards, I mean, there's obviously things that they are doing, things like imposing the universal credit cut, which I think is obviously, you know, essential as a minimum. I think we also need to be talking about the public sector pay freeze, things like that. Mm -hmm. The minimum wage is an obvious one. Again, uh, they seem to have rolled back on that one. I think increasing to 15 pounds an hour, I think would be uh, you know, would be would be a bit of a no brainer at this point. But also, a, you know, a vision we're at, we're at a time where we're coming out of a pandemic, which has seen lots of people lose their jobs, which has seen a kind of restructuring of the, of the economy, coming out of the vision that says actually we're going to invest directly in creating a whole new wave of high paid, high skilled jobs to accelerate that green transition. Uh, I, you know, as Karis mentioned, energy efficiency in housing has got to be one of the biggest no brainers in politics today, because we have one of the least energy efficient housing stocks in Europe. That's bad for the climate. It's also bad for household bills. And we need to put people to work at the moment. People are looking and we need to put them in good, well-paid jobs. So training people up to do rapid housing retrofitting of the entire housing stock at this time is a triple win because it's creating thousands of jobs. It's uh, good for the energy, uh, for the climate transition. And also um, it's good for household bills. And so stuff like that, there's low-hanging fruit, really, that you want to see Labour really pushing quite forcefully. Uh, and unfortunately, we aren't really seeing that at the moment. What do you think, Carison, is where the opposition should be? Yeah, I actually think there's a really interesting opportunity for Labour here if they choose to take it, which is um, quite a big if. But, you know, we've got an economy currently that has been shown to uh, be susceptible to these global trends. And I think they should be arguing for investment in the British economy, in our energy sector and in our housing stock to make us less susceptible to what Russia decides to do, because that can bring together a coalition of people who want the UK to stand on its own two feet and those people who really care about climate. 
Um, I do think that presents an opportunity. And then the second opportunity I see is that a whole load of people are about to uh, experience a squeeze on their living standards and their um, the, their cost of living. Um, this is precisely the moment to be making the case for a more generous safety net um, mm-hmm. and for, for helping people with those essential costs in life. Um, and so I think there are two opportunities there that they should be pushing on. Just finally, a couple of things. Uh, firstly, Tad Campbell asks, well, just says, I'm just vaguely interested, Brexit accelerates the systemic issues that's making the UK situation worse in Europe. Um, but in terms of finally, just in terms of wages, because the Tories do actually have a clear message at the moment. They do have a clear vision, um, which is, it's not honest, but I mean, it, they're saying, you know, Boris Johnson said, well, he is honest about the fact that wages have stagnated in real terms, uh, real wages for workers have been squeezed for the longest period since the Napoleonic era under a Conservative government, which is obviously not something he has emphasised. He's tried to make it sound like these are previous governments, which uh, somehow aren't, uh, you know, have nothing to do with his the current administration, which has been in power for 11 years in different forms. Um, and that they're going to move to this high wage, high skill, high productivity economy. Um, and, you know, Obviously, they're blaming immigration, and the, the studies are very clear on this. Immigration overall doesn't suppress wages. There is evidence at the lower ends of the labour market there is an impact, which, of course, could be addressed, for example, with a higher minimum wage, stronger trade union rights, ensuring people are hired on the same terms and conditions, taking on the so-called flexible labour market and so on. Uh, but obviously, that's they're, they're just talking about immigration as, as, as the reason for that. So I'm just wondering, Laurie, in terms of what you think about the vision they're portraying, uh, the, the vision they're talking about, this high-wage economy they want to they want to build, which people on the left obviously would be very happy with. Um, and according to the ONS, annual wage growth is at a two-decade high. So maybe they are delivering the goods. What do you think, Laurie? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that this is, that Boris Johnson starts to talk about wages and highlighting the decade of stagnation again, you know, thinking that people won't think about who's been in power for that for that period. But on the other hand, when you look at the actual headline statistics, you can see the politics of what he's trying to do here. As you said, headline average weekly earnings are, at, in terms of growth, are actually at, at, at a 20-year high. Important to just ex- maybe unpick that a little bit because there is quite a bit of sort of statistical anomalies going on here, which partly explain mm-hmm. that. One is what's called base effects, which basically means that uh, your growth is comparing the wages today compared to 12 months ago. At the start of the pandemic, wages plummeted quite badly. And so what we're seeing now is uh, you're comparing today to a very low baseline. And so you're seeing quite high growth. And we'll see this in other areas as well, other economic metrics. You might see double-digit growth. But that's because you're comparing it to a massive, massive slump. So it's slightly misleading. The other thing is, is that the pandemic's seen quite a lot of job losses that have been concentrated among the lower-paid jobs. And when the proportion of the work, workforce in low-paid jobs shrinks, average wages automatically increase statistically even without pay rises elsewhere so again it's a bit of a mathematical quirk nonetheless it is that it is true that in certain occupations pay is rising so in areas like hgv drivers mm-hmm. uh in areas like uh accommodation and food in areas like construction pay is generally going up and that's because of these labor shortages that have been accentuated by uh, both the pandemic uh, and by brexit and so it's, it's easy to see why Boris Johnson's talking about this. I think that the political capital of being able to do this will wear off because these effects will sort of will, will disappear as time moves on. Uh, and I don't think there's any evidence that the, the measures that this government's taken is going to actually pay off when it comes to delivering this high wage, high productivity economy. I think what we will see is that uh, we will see in pockets of the economy, we, we, we do see these sorts of pressures because of shortages. Um, but I, I, I don't see this sort of rippling through uh, short of other measures, particularly given what the government's done, is, it seems to be doing the opposite, as I say, freezing public sector pay, which which yeah. takes up quite a large chunk of the economy. And so I can see this opportunistic uh, sort of part of Boris Johnson jumping on these statistics. But I do think he might come to regret it further down the line where where we actually don't see any sustainable increases in, in pay productivity unless we see significant other action from the government, which at the moment doesn't seem to be forthcoming. What do you think, Karis, in terms of that and what they would be doing if they really did want to make their vision a reality? Mm. Well, it's an opportunistic uh, post hoc explanation of what's happening, I think, um, that Boris is, is taking. 
I mean, just one statistic for you. Between 2010 and 2019, 40% of people saw their wages fall in real terms. That's from um, one of our recent reports. That is twice as high as in the previous decade. So people are literally seeing their spending power. This is the same people tracked over time. They're seeing their spending power decline. Um, and the things that have caused that haven't been fixed. So suddenly just you know, taking migrants out of the economy isn't going to magically fix the UK's economic model. I completely agree with him, by the way, that the UK's economic model is broken. But to fix that means not just um, looking at, you know, it will, it will take investment and so on, but it also means shifting power in our economy. Um, it means looking at how the economy is structured. Um, I would argue it means investing, uh, following what Biden's doing by investing in those good green jobs of the future, um, creating a high pressure economy, all those sorts of things um, that, that need to be done and that's that's important not just to achieve growth but also to make sure that people across the economy are sharing in it and at the moment you see very little of any of that from the government in fact quite the opposite you have Rishi Sunak um, exercising restraint including in public sector wages and so on um, and so I can't I can't see the the magic shift to a, a better economic model that Boris um, is trying to argue he is doing. And we'll be talking about Biden now with our, with our next guest. That's a very useful segue. So thank you so much. But both of you, that was absolutely brilliant. A real masterclass. Uh, very, very educational and informative. So honestly, really appreciate it. You're, you're both absolutely uh, fantastic. Top notch experts who everyone needs to follow on Twitter. Which I'm just going to read out your Twitter handles now. It's L underscore MacFarlane. That's with a M-A-C. And Double Karen underscore. Sisson. Oh, double underscore. Are oh, you one of them? Nightmare. Has someone nicked yeah. the single underscore nightmare? It's to say, Owen, so Owen Jones is a dormant Twitter account, livid about it. Um, Adam uh, and Caris Roberts, that's uh, C A R Y S, and then Roberts. Do follow them both uh, on Twitter, and you'll be able to get their wisdom at any time. So thank you so much to both of you, honestly. Really, really appreciate it, and I'll speak to you soon. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Thanks, for Thanks Owen. Take care yourselves. Uh, fantastic stuff. Now, we're very lucky to have uh, an extremely uh, ex esteemed economist uh, joining us live from New York. It's Professor Adam Tews, who's at Columbia University. Well, he's got many hats, but uh, Adam, it's great to see you. How are you doing? Hi, good morning. Nice to, nice to be here. Adam, um, firstly, I'm just interested because you're a Brit abroad, I suppose, obviously. And I'm just interested with your academic hat on. What does it, how does it look from afar, the current situation in Britain? And I say that because, you know, our media ecosystem in this country is largely pretty uh, servile when it comes to the government in office. I referred earlier to the New York Times, uh, the reports before the pandemic happened in this country spoke of a country in the grip of mass delusion, or certainly the government, uh, which was obviously very prescient. Uh, but also now there was a recent New York Times article warning of a very bleak winter in Britain, which is is not something you necessarily see reflected in, in a lot of the domestic media. So what's your kind of take on from afar, I suppose, because you're a bit removed? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm multiply removed because I, I have an English accent and a UK passport, unfortunately, but I actually grew up in Germany, in West Germany. So I'm far more English appearing than I actually am. Whenever, whenever things get rough, and of course they have been rather rough for a while, I, I just retreat into my shell and <laughs> like check out, to be honest. Uh, but I have loads of friends and family and of course spent years working in the UK. So, so it's something, you know, I can't shed. And it is always a matter, I think, of walking a fine line. This is true generally, of especially New York Times coverage of Europe. I mean, it's very, it's spotty. It's a little weird at times. And you do have to basically correct for over-dramatization. Um, nevertheless, dropping in on the UK news at this particular moment and into the middle of the Tory party conference, um, after all, you know, does induce a slightly hallucinatory kind of effect. Some of the rhetoric coming out of that meeting is sort of just mind-blowing. And uh, the transposition of reality, right, um, uh, that takes place there is is is, is staggering. Um, I don't admire Boris Johnson at all, but it, it, is, it is a remarkable kind of performance of, it's not even post-factual, it's just sort of a kind of toying with reality, the construction of, of images of the world. Um, if you try and dig in, there are obviously really some acute problems, but they're sort of a, a compounding of long-term well-known problems like the existence of a very large group of people in the UK who, who are in poverty and, and therefore, as it were, any change in prices causes acute distress. And then you compound that with gratuitous cuts to benefits that actually were one of the good things that came out of 2020. And then, of course, you can add that up to and then you've got the famous, you know, things missing from supermarkets and the whole, you know, you, you put together quite a picture and then you can arrive at this kind of nightmarish vision, uh, which is either totally exaggerated or in a sense, it's just the regular ordinary nightmare of of a society with massive inequality and huge and, and very serious poverty where there are just millions of households, well, six million, I think, households on on universal credit who who are going to suffer a thousand pound a year loss in income and for some people that's really going to i mean that's going to hurt everyone but it's going to be really difficult to deal with in light of rising food prices and and um and um and energy bills so you know wh whether there's turkeys in waitrose at christmas is like perhaps less important than that acute reality of six six million uh, households that are in really serious distress as a result of price pressure and low incomes and the compounding effect of benefit cuts. Adam, I'm really interested in talking about what's happening in the US on its own terms, but also obviously it has implications to the global economy. What happens in the US mm. economy affects all of us. And also because what's happening in terms of well, the Biden's policies uh, in terms of where Labour positions itself have become very much very important to debates on the left here in this country and internal debates within the Labour Party. So just like to begin with, Biden's uh, economic policies, and there's a bit of a tug of war going on at the moment, partly because of the most conservative Democrats who are trying to, uh, I suppose, take out some of the more progressive elements. But tell me, how progressive overall, very oh, general question, how progressive would you term Biden's current economic policies? I think the crucial thing, and I'm sorry to be kind of like nitpicky about this, but like the crucial thing to understand about American politics is that, as it were, the position of the White House is just one element in the equation of what actually happens. Um, you know, the sort of West Wingy view that we have of American politics is dramatic and glamorous for some people, at least, but it doesn't really convey what happens. And, and it's, this, it's this sort of um, you know, sort of ecosystem of arguments that begins during the primaries of the election. Um, and the progressive elements of Biden's programme are almost all infused from the Sanders campaign. Um, that's the crucial thing to understand, right? In the summer of 2020, after Sanders dropped out, the Biden team very, you know, smartly said, right, let's open to the left, incorporate these people. These people actually have ideas. They have a policy agenda, the Green New Deal, that actually speaks to the 21st century we can consolidate uh, a block of voters here and really sort of take a vampiric blood infusion of energy from these folks. Biden himself is a is a really middle of the road centrist politician who swung mood continuously over his incredibly long career. The basic agenda, he outlined it in this extraordinarily frank uh, uh, speech he gave to major donors, including people like Jamie Dimon, like you know boss of J.P. Morgan. 
um, at the Carlisle Hotel is, is, is almost 19th century in its conservatism. It says, look, we've got, you know, we, you've got to recognize we have this huge inequality in the American society that that creates. He used the word revolution that creates the potential for populism and revolution. You although he says, speaking to these mega donors, none of this is going to hurt. If I transferred a couple of hundred billion dollars away from you, it wouldn't even you know, register in your lifestyles. You know, in your gut, he says, we've got to do this. Trust me, I'm going to deliver. I mean, he, he says it in so many words. So, and then you have people like Manchin and Cinema, who are essentially crypto Republicans. In Manchin's case, I mean, a he is a coal, a minor coal baron, and b he is running in West Virginia. So it is, which is the most Trumpy state in the union. So we're, <laughs> the Democrats are, in a sense, fortunate to count him, but by some freakish personal chemistry amongst their ranks. So out of that, policy has to come, right? So, and and what the White House would like, and the technocrats there suggest is then watered down, argued over, bickered over, and God knows what's going to emerge. I mean, the Biden plans were New Deal, Green New Deal light, that, that they weren't large enough um, in the vision that he proposed earlier in the year. They were, they were significant in terms of American history. They were pushing in the right direction. They were clad and organized rhetorically in the right way, but they were too small. We now look as though we're going to end up with like one trillion in bipartisan and maybe two trillion as the Democrats' own program. Those are huge numbers, of course, but the American economy is gigantic, right? It's 18, 19, $20 trillion a year in GDP, and this stuff is spread over eight to 10 years. So when you, when you, when you break it all down, it's, it's not the scale of money that, that, that America would need, A, to meet just the scale of the challenges of the 21st century, and B, to make good the huge infrastructural deficits, both in the welfare sector, in you know, areas like childcare, and, you know, in actually driving America towards some sort of energy transition. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, Joe Biden, as you say, very much from the so-called centrist wing of the uh, of the Democratic Party. And yet some of the rhetoric he talks about in terms of taxing the rich. I mean, you'd say kind of standard fair stuff in lots of ways. Um, but it's to the left of. Well, I mean, the funny thing about it is it's just common sense politics, you think. right? <laughs> Why is this not obvious? As, as a politics, um, but that is, that is exactly he does. I mean, I think the most significant thing really, uh, and there was a lot of hope associated with this early on, and we've not just seen any legislative action, but the most significant thing is not so much the taxing because you know, that'll be frittered away and watered down, but actually his approach to the labor market, where when employers were whining on about labor shortages, you know, he just simply said, you know what, the solution to this is pay them more, right? Mm -hmm. So pay your workers more, right? And, and there is a sense in the Biden administration that the, the big game is really to shift the balance of power in the labor market between employers and, and employees towards the side of labor. And there was hope in the organized labor movement that there would be serious legislation on this. And one of the reasons why the reconciliation bill, the two trillion, three trillion, the big package that the Democrats will pass on their own votes is so important is that it might contain the residual elements of, of uh, legislation designed to support and strengthen the position of American trade unions. And that, as it were, would be a permanent shift, something lasting, because otherwise the essence of this policy consists in running the economy hot. I mean, it's kind of it's it's not fair to describe it as like basically a sugar high. But and, and hell, we'll take a sugar high over, you know, starving. But um the structural elements uh, on where, as it were, the Biden administration and its advisors may really have moved significantly left to the left is to say, you know what, we actually need to change the rules of the game or at least the balance of forces in the game um, so as to enable um, working Americans to get a fairer deal. Um, you mentioned Joe Manchin, for those who aren't familiar with him, he's the West Virginia uh, senator. He's very much a conservative uh, Democrat. In fact, there's a headline today in The Guardian uh, saying that, we should stop calling him a moderate. He's just a greedy reactionary. He's on a mission to save the United States from becoming an entitlement society. The West Virginia Senate has become a household name thanks to his attempts to ensure the Democrats achieve absolutely nothing whatsoever in the next few years. In particular, he's been fighting to shrink the price tag of the Biden administration's 10-year social spending package from $3.5 trillion to $1.5 trillion. He's been very vague about policies he wants to cut from Build Back Better Bill, but he just keeps repeating the fact that he doesn't want Americans to become entitled. I mean, where do you think it will end up given that particular opposition from him? Yeah, I mean, he is, he's an extraordinary figure. I mean, and, the, and this, this play and it's, you know, irrelevance in the UK as well is like, what is a moderate? 
and and Manchin tries to position himself in this like a position that people aspire to, obviously, rather than you know wanting to be dismissed as radical. And in fact, he's basically just conservative and indeed engaged in a sort of standing rebellion against the agenda of his own president, notionally. Um, where we're going to end up is anyone's guess at this point. The number that seems to be in discussions right now is $2 trillion. I mean, if you've watched enough sort of House of Cards or read like biographies of the great days of democratic politics in the 60s, you just can't help wondering, like, where are the dark arts when you need them? Like, why can't they twist this guy's arm? I mean, there must be some skeleton in his closet or there must be some bribe that he can be offered. But unfortunately, apparently to get his vote, even for the, rec- the, the bill that was agreed with the Republicans, the, the smaller of the two packages, the one that has some GOP, some Republican support, is larded with giveaways for West Virginia. So it may be, as it were, that they, they've already paid him off and, and they apparently don't have or just don't have the guts to, to threaten him or threaten him and cinema with whatever the consequences will be. They, they, they can't primary him. So this is the thing that's normally used to threaten a recalcitrant senator is that the party will basically remove the protection. And so in the next primaries... Um, he would face a, a challenger from the left. This is what the Tea Party on the right did to centrist Republicans. Um, but they know perfectly well that in West Virginia, if there's a primary, somebody, you know, Manchin will 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 win. Or if he loses to a leftist, then then the Democrats lose that senatorial seat to the right. So he knows, as it were, he's too he's too important to fail. They can't let him. They can't um, genuinely uh, force his hand. In terms of the sort of measures that are being proposed uh, to deal with obviously the climate emergency, but linking it to a general economic and social package. What, what can, what can we learn here? Do you think from the UK from, from what's being proposed? I'm, I'm quite skeptical to be honest. I mean, what people, folks don't generally appreciate in Europe is just how rudimentary many of these items are. I mean, America doesn't have, paternity and maternity leave to speak of. It has the some of the highest. I mean, only the UK comes close in terms of childcare costs. So really elementary things are at stake here. Basic elementary child tax credits are such a scandalous radical innovation that they can't probably be passed for more than one year at a time. And we're talking about like a $300 credit, which Biden has said is the bit of this that he's most proud of. Um, when we come to infrastructure, again, it's kind of risible. I mean, it's the question of whether or not America maybe ought to advance, you know, embark on the on the daring experiment of maybe having one high speed rail line. So we are a long way behind the curve. Um, it matters, of course, because large parts of, say, the auto industry will take their lead from the US and the, the United States will become undoubtedly a lead elephant in the push to electric mobility. It isn't any longer the decisive factor in, in the world industry. China clearly is at this point. Um, but the big, you know, the big American producers are significant players in that. And so if there was, if what emerged was a substantial package of support for, um, you know, electric charging stations, then that will make a big difference. And if Ford and GM can have their very lucrative American markets shift rapidly to electric mobility, that will help elsewhere. But this isn't, you know, this, no one should confuse this with some sort of path setting, trend setting package. The Sanders deal, the 10 trillion, that would have been a different story. Um, that's the sort of scale that, um, you know, that spending really needs to be at. But given where America's at and given the modesty of the proposals that are coming through here and the way it's going to be hedged, Really, we're just asking, we're really just hoping for America, as it were, to do its bit, keep up with the pace of the overall transformation. And I think that's what's worrying progressives in the US as well. One of the other things I wanted to ask you is, are the deficit hawks going to make a comeback, do you think? Um, I mean, it's interesting here, again, in the British context, where you've you've got Labour politicians always trying to rerun 2010 to 2015 and uh, talking about the need to balance budgets whilst the Conservatives have have splurged vast amounts of of money, obviously, during our biggest crisis since World War II. So I'm just wondering, do you think the deficit hawks, I mean, of course, back infamously under uh, Roosevelt, who everyone associates, of course, with the New Deal, in 1937, the deficit hawks got the upper hand. They implemented massive cuts, caused a terrible disaster for the American uh, economy back then. It's a period of his administration, which is, is generally not referred to or talked about much in terms of people's understanding of that history. So what do you think? I mean, the deficit hawks do tend to make a comeback in periods like this. What do you think? Are they, are they going to make a comeback? 
They already are, right? So whether in the UK, I mean, what else is a cut to, you know, the, the, the universal credit system than a, than a gratuitous budget balancing measure? There's no other justification for it in Europe as well, which, like it or not, is rather important for Britain's economy. Um, the, the, the debate is already engaged and the, the eight hawkish fiscal conservative states have already staked out their position and they want to drive Europe back towards some sort of fiscal stabilization program. And in the US, that is the position of, of Manchin and Sinema, right? One of the astonishing things about this latest round of Biden proposals is that they are to be paid for, right? So these are the deficit type injections that we saw in 2020 and the beginning of this year. This stuff all has tax measures that go with it. Now, that is part of the progressive agenda. That, and Pelosi was very vociferous in demanding this, right? That So you, you combine high spending targeted at key progressive agenda items with progressive redistributive taxation. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with that combination in the current moment, because the American economy is bouncing back quite fast. We don't probably need another large injection of fiscal juice at this particular moment. But this is not, these are not, as it were, deficit programs that are being proposed in the first instance. They're priority spending with combined taxation measures. So the one thing, as it were, that the US Treasury under Janet Yellen and in Biden administration has been pushing quite proactively is this global, you know, global corporate tax regime. And that's part of this, part of this agenda. But the debate is only just beginning. And, you know, as a historian, it's worth, you know, helping people to think about the timelines here, because we telescope, you know, the Roosevelt administration into, in our own minds, it sort of shrinks down. But as you say, like he comes into office in 33, in 37 is when is when that that damage is done in the austerity wave of the early of the early 2010s right the crisis is in 2008 the austerity begins in 2010 so if 2020 is our benchmark next year is really the decisive moment in this first battle over what priorities are going to be and i think you know we have to say that the hawks are already in the building just a couple of final things. I mean, in terms of the US, what are the kind of key demands you think progressives, people on the left should be demanding right now? Well, I mean, I think they just mustn't let go of the of the climate issue that is going to be, you know, whittled away. We're not frankly left with very much at this point in the hardcore that the key element probably is the combination of because in the end, so there are, you know, there are three ways that you could really move on climate. Um, yeah. Prices, which are a no-go in the US. Um, investment, which is what we're arguing about. And the third element is regulation, right? And what the Biden administration have been doing is playing a kind of shell game where you say, well, where's your policy on pricing? They say, oh, no, 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 look to investment. And now we're in the investment phase and they'll say, no, 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 no. It's really about regulation. So what we've got to do, in a sense, is hold fast on the minimum amount of investment necessary to supercharge the regulatory push which comes next now that runs into that's more within the discretion of the administration they don't have to haggle with congress quite so much about it but insofar as they want to combine regulation with investment they need the money and that's as it were the thing which is critical like so the clean air standards is where they want to drive the decarbonization of electricity generation the easy bit of the puzzle right and holding on to the necessary backstopping of the regulatory agenda on the clean air side is, is i think that's absolutely strategic if you had a if you had a blue sky kind of agenda and this just shows you where the american debate is at what america needs believe it or not is a national unemployment insurance system that's worthy of the name <laughs> if you could get that through it will be it will be life-changing but the biden administration isn't doing institutional change right as bad a reputation as obamacare has in retrospect that at least was a very bold institutional agenda hugely complex piece of legislation we're not seeing anything like this that this time around but what 2020 revealed is that america you know doesn't doesn't just not have the system necessary for a furlough short-time working system it really doesn't have the means to support its population, those unfortunate enough to become unemployed in just a regular major economic crisis. You have to string it together each time through federal grants, which support supplementary insurance in places like Florida, which have totally punitive, you know, systems which are deliberately, it says it on the tin, designed to deter applicants. Uh, we saw the pictures, those pictures of people queuing last year out exposed without adequate masks and so on, desperately trying to get benefits. That's that's a feature, not a bug that was built into that Florida system. And, and so then you have to do the huge CARES Act to back up a failing 
a region. And of course, Florida is gigantic, right? So these are the big American states of the size of European nation states. So coordinating that is huge. And Europe finds it difficult to do common unemployment insurance. America does too. But that would be, you know, that would be transformative in terms of the situation of, of many tens of millions of Americans. Finally, what from afar, what do you think here in Britain, what would you like to see the Labour Party arguing, perhaps in contrast to what they're currently doing? Well, I mean, I, I'm on the record as saying that I, you know, I, I mourn the passing of the Green New Deal as the organising framework. Something like that is just the horizon of progressive politics around the world, um, not memories of the Blitz, not, you know, flag waving, not, you know, not compulsive displays of patriotism, but a focus on focus on the horizon of the 21st century. The Greens have this phrase in Germany about being you know, at eye level with the historical moment. And one can argue about the details of the Green New Deal and its advisability as a tactical measure and all other aspects of the Corbyn leadership. But that set a high bar for a kind of politics that recognises where we're at. Um, so the radicalism of that proposal was not, as it were, something dreamt up. It simply reflects the emergency that we're in. And that, I think, is what you know progressive politics has to do. Is that difficult to sell to voters? Is the immediate pushback you get? Well, perhaps, but that too is the mission of a progressive politics, right? It's not to sell, really. It's to convey, it's to mediate, it's to argue, it's to engage people in a conversation about how they actually think the world's going to be. And what we see instead in this vacuum, I thought the Will Davis piece in The Guardian a day or two ago was brilliant, right? If Labour pulls back, you end up in this situation where policy is being set by a bunch of fantasists on the one hand, and then behind the scenes in these two very tough processes of Brexit negotiation on the one hand, which has a grinding logic of its own, which is very difficult to escape. And on the other hand, macro policy being set by the Bank of England. Adam, that was absolutely brilliant. And I should have said, I'll say it now, do make sure you get a copy of Adam's brilliant book, Shut Down, How uh, COVID Shook the World's Economy, which came out last month, I think, didn't it? Um, uh, Critically got fantastic reviews and and very rightly so. So do make sure you get yourself a copy and also follow Adam on Twitter, Adam underscore twos, T-O-O-Z-E. But Adam, that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Real tour de force. So... Thank you for, it's early, we should say, he has to get up, it's, uh, it's not even 8am yet over in uh, NYC. Uh, so we really appreciate you doing this so early, your time uh, to share your wisdom, your insights and your knowledge with us. We really, really appreciate it. Pleasure, always. Take care, Adam. Speak to you soon. Great stuff from all of them. Uh, again, very hugely informative and educational stuff. Uh, very lucky to have those such a wide range of guests. Uh, so uh, I'm going to sign off, but just to let you know, uh, well, firstly, I've got to do another plug about a documentary, which is doing on Conservative Party conference. Just it's, it's uh, just just on Tory conference uh, and that video. I know a lot of you found it quite um, exhausting to watch. Um, some of you had to go on long walks, punch walls. You were annoyed. You were angry. Um, I'm not sure I get a little violin out, but all I'm saying is that those 23 minutes, uh, well, obviously not representative of the several hours that we spent at Conservative Party Conference, it was quite intense. I'm not going to lie. The other thing that I would also say is, uh, and I think this is important to say, I think some people kind of thought we've showcased the most extreme or unrepresentative Tory delegates, but we did. I mean, I don't edit the videos. Uh, a brilliant videographer, Jack Barrowcloth, did, and he did an incredible job, as you can see. Uh, but it was just an accurate cross-section because that's why we included people who actually were repudiating Tory dogma on issues like trade unions. Uh, I mean, they were often wrapped in knots over it, to be fair. Uh, but it was just, you know, we, we, were, we, we were very clear from the outset. We would just do an honest take and documentary about about what we saw um obviously the comical lengths that tory ministers went to to avoid talking to us uh, i mentioned quite a before because we tried to talk to him and this woman just sidled up to me when we we're trying to speak to him she was like oh, oh Owen, i'm so sorry to interrupt we met ages ago i i was actually working in waitrose and i served you some fish i was like i I don't, I don't, I was like, are you an advisor? Are you trying to distract me? She was like, no, 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 no. No, it's just, uh, you, I tried to serve you fish. And we went through this lo- long uh, rigmarole. And then at the end, he escaped. He said, I was an advisor. Sorry about that. Uh, it was, 
so they just did everything they could to try and uh, throw us off off our scent. Michael Grove at least did speak to us. It's just he tried to bluff and charm his way out of answering the question about universal credit and how many people would be driven into poverty. Uh, but those, as I say, those videos take a lot of time, resources to make, and we only do them because of you. We've got another documentary coming out, uh, which we filmed. We're just going to edit on wealth and power. We went to a working class community in London, the impact of property developers on that community. And that documentary is very much partly about handing the mic to local working class residents who are airbrushed out of existence in most of our national media and that's obviously what we wanted to do with this outlet we wanted to give a voice to people uh who otherwise are intentionally silenced and marginalized and demonized for that matter by much of the media so if you want to support us doing more of those documentaries on patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 that is obviously hugely appreciated we've got loads of interviews to come up uh this week which i will um uh in fact, yeah, we will. I'll, I'll, you, you'll find out soon. We've got some great guests coming up, so that's great. Um, just quickly, because I missed some of the super chats. Um, Tad Campwell, um, who's a great supporter of the channel, um, thinks I'm underplaying the English nationalist forces and Brexit that will break the US, uh, the UK economy over time in the name of sovereignty. And yeah, of course, you've obviously got a very strong point there. And obviously, we could see uh, the UK itself disintegrate. It was very interesting, actually, in terms of how the Conservative Party has just become this radical English nationalist force, because in 2019, there was a poll of the Tory membership, which showed the cons- of the Conservative and Unionist Party, a large majority, if between Brexit, uh, you know, if it meant Brexit not happening, would support, would prefer it if Scotland became independent, Ireland became reunified. Uh, so obviously, you know, English nationalism of a certain breed has very much captured uh the conservative party and we saw it under cameron as well you know the way english nationalism was stirred up and whipped up you know kind of anti-scottish resentment in the 2015 election that the you know scottish nationalist forces will be pulling the strings of a weak ed Miliband government um and obviously english nationalism has in large part brought this country as a whole to the place it has arrived at, which is not great. So yeah, it's a good point. David Barata, do you think America will start to embrace unions in order to fight for workers' rights anytime soon? That's really interesting because actually, unfortunately, the US has, you know, had even more of an offensive against its unions historically than we did. After World War II, you had the so-called Red Scares and McCarthyism, which was used to bring trade unions to heel. Um Several states introduced right-to-work laws, which were anti-union legislation, particularly in southern American states, which weakened their bargaining power and their position. Um, And the US, whilst in this country, by 1979, half the workforce was unionized. It's halved since then. In the US, it only ever got at most to a third. And now only 8% of its private sector workers are actually unionized. Now, uh, I mean, you know, Obama did actually originally talk about trying to get those some of those anti-union laws uh, repealed, uh, but the US remains very much a hostile environment for the labor movement. And we can see the graphs are very clear that there is a very strong correlation between rising inequality and trade unions, which have been uh, battered into the ground. Uh, because obviously what unions are able to do is provide a bigger slice of the pie for labor as opposed to capital. And We've seen the share of labor as a percentage of the economy diminish and the ability, you know, if we look at US median male wages, they pretty much stayed static for four decades. And that's, again, a big part of the explanation is they're weakened unions. But of course, we've got a problem here as well. We've only got now a quarter of our own workers unionized and in the private sector, it's only about 14 percent. And many of those are ex, they're, they're privatized public utilities. Um, and the nature of our casualized, fragmented workforce makes it very hard to unionize as well as our anti-trade union legislation as well. So obviously making the case for equality and uh, a different economic model means arguing for strong unions. Also, thanks to John McKenzie as well uh, and uh, for your support. So uh, look out for our next documentary, which is made possible by you. Um, we've got lots of great interviews coming up and other videos coming up and on the podcast you make all that possible so thank you so so much as per usual on youtube do press like and subscribe 
press like, good for the algorithm, more people will watch and listen. Same on the podcast. If you want to leave us five stars, we will love you forever. Lots of love, everyone. I hope you're enjoying your weekend, whatever you're doing. And I will speak to you next week live, but also during the week. Take care. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.